Please take your Bibles once more and turn with me to the book of Leviticus. We began to look at Leviticus chapter 10 last week, and this morning we want to continue on. It was not my original intent to split this chapter up into two messages, but that's what happened. I guess I got carried away last week. In any case, this is uh, where we are. Let's pick up with verse 12, and I will read through the end of the chapter. Then Moses spoke to Aaron and to his surviving sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, Take the grain offering that is left over from the Lord's offerings by fire and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it, moreover, in a holy place, because it is your due and your son's due out of the Lord's offerings by fire, for thus I have been commanded." The breast of the wave offering, however, and the thigh of the offering you may eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they have been given as your due and your sons do out of the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the sons of Israel. The thigh offered by lifting up and the breast offered by waving, they shall bring along with the offerings by fire of the portions of fat to present as a wave offering before the Lord. So it shall be a thing perpetually due you and your sons with you, just as the Lord commanded. But Moses searched carefully for the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it had been burned up. So he was angry with Aaron's surviving sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, saying, Why did you not eat the sin offering at the holy place? For it is most holy, and he gave it to you to bear away the guilt of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord. Behold, since its blood had not been brought inside to the sanctuary, you should certainly have eaten it in the sanctuary, just as I commanded. But Aaron spoke to Moses, Behold, this very day they presented their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. When things like these happened to me, if I had eaten a sin offering today, would it have been good in the sight of the Lord? When Moses heard that, it seemed good in his sight. Our Father and our God, give us understanding today, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going back. We need to review a little bit because what we're seeing here this morning builds on what we saw last week, and what we saw last week was quite dramatic. It was the tragic story of Nadab and Abihu. That covers the first 11 verses of this chapter. In a sense, this story is all of a piece, but there's much to be said nonetheless. Let me go back and remind you again of the setting. 
We're here in the book of Leviticus, in which the first seven chapters focus upon the great personal offerings which are to be brought by the people of God to the tabernacle. They are to be brought willingly, individually, and voluntarily on different occasions in the life of one of God's people. And in the first seven chapters, those offerings are described for us from two perspectives. First, from the perspective of those bringing the offering. And secondly, from the perspective of the priest who is going to take that offering and actually perform the sacrifice. And so it comes from the standpoint of both the people's responsibility and privilege and obligation and the priest's responsibility and privilege and obligation. Then in Leviticus chapters 8 through 10, Moses is showing us the events surrounding the ordination of the Aaronic priesthood. Everything is just beginning. This is what we're seeing in Leviticus. We're just getting started with the Levitical worship of God's people. The functioning of the tabernacle and the priests and the offering up of the sacrifices. And so we find in chapters 8 through 10, the Aaronic priesthood there in Israel being prepared, being ordained, and then the initial service of the priests. And this is important for us to remember. It's important for us to remember that the events of Leviticus chapter 10 occur in the midst of the very first administration of the priestly sacrificial system in the history of Israel. These things, although instructions were given as far back as the book of Exodus in chapter 28, these things have never yet occurred until now. And that gives us some perspective as we come to Leviticus chapter 10 today. It gives us some perspective and understanding why God's response to the sin of Nadab and Abihu is so immediate and decisive and seemingly severe. This is the very first day of the administration of the Levitical priesthood which will point to Christ. And already, sin has crept in. It's a difficult passage, isn't it? I think all of us are instinctively sympathetic with the grief that Aaron was experiencing. When one loses an elderly parent, there is sadness and there is grief. But it's not a surprise. We expect elderly parents to die. But when children and young people die, it's a different kind of grief altogether. Some of you have experienced such loss or been close to those who have. So you can imagine the grief that Aaron was now experiencing. He had just lost his boys. 
Nadab and Abihu, on the very first day of the, the, the administration of their priestly ministry, had been destroyed before Aaron's eyes. But it's not just a natural tragedy. They didn't die from disease. They hadn't been in some unfortunate accident. They had been judged by God. And as a result of their disobedience, they had been struck down, and it is God Himself who delivered the blow. The same God whom we are told so often today would never judge. The God who is love and whom we are told is nothing but love. But that is a twisted version of who God is. God is indeed love, but God is also holy. God is love, but God is also righteous and just. God loves His people, but God is jealous for His own reputation. And that His worship be conducted as He demands. And when that is not done, here, on the first day of the initiation of His worship, as He has declared He will be worshipped, He does not hesitate to give a demonstration to the entire nation that He is serious about what He has said. And so it is the Lord Himself who strikes the blow. And then, as we saw last week, the Lord comes to Aaron and essentially tells Aaron, Aaron, no mourning. You've got responsibilities to fulfill. You are not to tear your clothes. You are not to mourn. Verse 8, if you'll remember, the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you when you come into the tent of meeting that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout the generations. And so as to make a distinction between the holy and profane and between the clean and the unclean. And so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statues which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. Aaron's sons have just been killed before his eyes and God has already moved on to remind Aaron about these elements of his own service there in the tabernacle. Can you imagine this? Aaron, you are not to engage in public mourning. Do not uncover your heads, verse 6, nor tear your clothes, so that you will not die. If you mourn for your children who have just been killed before you, I'm going to kill you too. I think 
If you were in Israel at that point, you'd get the idea. God is not to be trifled with. God is serious about the manner in which He is to be worshipped. The rest of your family, Aaron, they'll mourn. Israel, as a congregation, will mourn. But Aaron, if you mourn, it will call into question the righteousness of my judgment. And it will call into question your acceptance of my judgment. Aaron, you are not to mourn. We're told so poignantly, aren't we, in the very first verses that Aaron kept silent. His sons are judged. That last phrase in verse 3, So Aaron therefore kept silent. And we cannot help but be sympathetic to this man. At the same time, we understand that in this passage there are great issues at stake, two of which are His holiness and His grace. And this is what I want to bring out today in the remaining portion of chapter 10. Let me try to describe for you just how those things are displayed for us. First, let's look at God's holiness. God's holiness is clearly made known in the judgment that is brought against Nadab and Abihu. They failed to obey God's commands. They came before the Lord according to their own devices, their own ideas. They, of their own volition, came up with a plan whereby they would offer strange fire to the Lord. And as a result, the Lord brings judgment against them. See, the priests of Israel were to be representatives of God's holiness to the people. And one of the ways they were to reflect His holiness was by their strict attention to the commandments that God had given to them and to the people about how He was to be approached. And here on the very first day that they were to enact those rituals in Israel, Nadab and Abihu had ignored what God had said And they had brought the holy and righteous judgment of God down upon their own heads. That's the first obvious way we see the holiness of God here. The second way, though, is in the way that the Lord and Moses respond to that incident. And we see this especially in verses 12 through 15. Moses reiterates to Eleazar and to Ithamar to who are the other sons of of Aaron. We're, We're told they are his surviving sons. Moses tells them about the specific things that they are to do. Because now they step up and have to fulfill the the place of their dead brothers. The worship of God has to go on. There are sacrifices to be offered. The people must have intermediaries. Now, these are things that we've already seen two or three times in the book of Leviticus by now. We've seen them twice in Leviticus 1-7. through We've seen them again in Leviticus 9. In other words, Moses was giving these commands 
over and over and over again. And you can see the logic of Moses having to say it over and over again because it didn't get through to Nadab and Abihu the first two times. So let's try a third. He's given these commands and Nadab and Abihu had just gone on their merry way and they've done what they wanted to do. But God's holiness is displayed through Moses. And this again comes to this grieving family. And he says, now, one more time. Let's go over this again. We don't want this to happen again. So maybe you'll pay attention this time. And Moses speaks to them. Take the grain offering that is left over from the Lord's offerings by fire and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it, moreover, in a holy place, because it is your due and your son's due out of the Lord's offerings by fire, for thus I have been commanded. The breast of the wave offering, however, and the thigh offering you may eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they have been given as your due and your son's due out of the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the sons of Israel. The thigh offered by lifting up and the breast offered by waving, they shall bring along with the offerings by fire, the portions of fat, to present as a wave offering before the Lord. So it shall be a thing perpetually do you and your sons with you, just as the Lord commanded. So Moses is reminding them there are some offerings that are to be entirely consumed. There are other offerings in which there will be some remaining portions left, And the priests themselves, and only the priests, are to eat those portions there in the tabernacle, in the sight of all the people, so the people will have assurance that their sacrifices have been offered, and they are right with God as a result. There are other sacrifices in which there are some portions that the priests can take with them to a clean place and share with their families. And God has made arrangements for all of these. It's a stunning display of God's holiness. We're going to see in a few moments, God is far from uncaring and unkind to His servants in this day of grief. You'll see many evidences of His grace in this passage, but we don't want to miss first seeing God's holiness in the midst of this very tragic family situation. And God's holiness is seen in verse 16 to the end of the chapter, because after repeating these commands, Moses starts nosing around a bit in the sanctuary to make sure that things are being done correctly. And he has every reason to be checking up. And when he does, there's another problem. Moses searched carefully for the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it had been burned up. This is a problem. Because there were portions of this offering that were to be eaten by the priests in the holy place. Moses goes, verse 17, and asks, Why did you not eat the sin offering at the holy place? Now, Moses isn't concerned that Aaron and his sons are hungry. 
That's not the issue. The issue is, by the priests going to the holy place and publicly eating a portion of that sacrifice, as we said earlier, they are communicating to the people that the sacrifice has been offered properly. And the people then receive assurance of their reconciliation to God, of the covering of their sin. But this hasn't happened. He doesn't find the sacrificial goat. There are no bones. There are, there, there's no evidence that the priests have come together to eat that goat. This is what we have seen before as we've studied this, this passage and this, this sacrifice. The priest sitting down there in the holy precincts eating the goat of the peace offering was designed to show the people of God that the guilt of their sin has been taken away and their fellowship to the Lord has been restored because the offering was done properly and accepted as holy and could now be eaten by the priests who were consecrated. So by not doing this, the priests were robbing the people of God from an assurance which God had provided for them. So Moses starts looking around and he can't find the goat and he comes to Eleazar and Ithamar and he says, where's the goat? And Aaron, being the father, he speaks up. And essentially, this is what he says. My sons have just died. And you want me to eat. It says in verse 9, Behold, this very day, they presented their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. When things like these happen to me, Things like these. Like having your children taken from you. Whether righteous or not, Aaron ought not be seen here as questioning what God has done. If you were to go to Aaron and you were to dispassionately ask him, Aaron, do you think God did the right thing? He would have said yes. That doesn't lessen the pain. And so he says, when things like this happen to me, if I had eaten a sin offering today, would it have been good in the sight of the Lord? How can I do this? My sons have just died. How do you expect me to eat? And you see here the demands of God's holiness. He's saying to Aaron and and to to Eleazar and to Ithamar, not even your family trauma is more important than your service of the Word and your service of worship to God's people. This is an awesome thing. Just like we studied previously. We're reminded of Jesus' words to those who would come to Him seeking to know what they would have to do in order to gain eternal life or, 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 or to be a follower of Jesus. And one would come and say, you know what, I do want to follow you, but let me bury my father first. 
And our heart wants to say, oh, you lost your father. That's such a hard thing. Oh, absolutely go. Take care of those things. Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. You come and follow me. Jesus says, I'm the priority. Over everything else, I am the priority. And that's what God is saying here. And He is right to do so. Because God is the priority. In every situation, in every experience, God is the priority. The holiness of God is seen in the demands that He places upon Aaron and his sons. The precedence of their priestly service is to overrule even their personal grief. Because the disciples' allegiance to Jesus Christ takes precedence over the closest of earthly relationships. The priests themselves are to be living, walking, talking, breathing examples of that truth. The holiness of God is seen everywhere in this passage. But, we also see grace. And this is wonderful. Because we always have to see the holiness of God and the grace of God together. If God is only holy, we're doomed. If God is only holy, we have no hope. But when we understand that God is both holy and gracious, then the clouds part. Then the sun comes shining through. Then we see that there is hope. There is a way. See, the problem is, because God is holy... He demands that we be holy. That's what we're seeing here. He had a demand of Nadab and Abihu that they be holy, that they conduct themselves in a holy manner. They didn't. And to take Paul's words, the wages of sin is death, and they found that out. Nothing is different for you and I except that God in His grace, does not strike us down immediately because of our sin and unholiness. But it's still His requirement. So God is holy, we're not, and we can't be. Now what? The now what is the grace. The grace that has come for us in the person of Jesus Christ. The grace that has come for us in a substitute who went to the cross and took upon Himself the penalty that we deserve. That if we will turn from our sin and trust 
in Christ and what He has accomplished as the ultimate sacrifice, then God will receive us. Not because we are holy, but because Jesus was holy. He will receive us because when we come to faith in Jesus, we are united with Him. Our sin is taken... And in exchange, we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we are able to stand before the Father in the holiness, in the righteousness of Jesus. That same grace that has saved us if we are in Christ, that same grace that is offered to you this morning if you are not yet in Christ, that same grace is present here in Leviticus chapter 10. It is grace we see everywhere in the passage. Let me just show it to you in a few ways. The first thing you see is this. In these verses of command, there in verses 12 through 15, when Moses is reiterating to the priests their particular obligations and prerogatives with regard to the various sacrifices that are being brought, Moses, in verse 12, says, take the grain offering. Verse 13, he says, you shall eat it because it is your due and your son's due out of the Lord's offerings. Take the breast and, 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 and the thigh of the wave offering. It is for you and your sons and your daughters. They have been given as your due and your son's due. And then again, the thigh and the breast and the wave offering is to be yours. Verse 15, it is perpetually due you and your sons. Do you see what Moses is saying? He's saying that even though Nadab and Abihu have grievously sinned against the Lord, the Lord is still promising these blessings and these provisions to the sons of Aaron. That's a word of grace. The sons of Aaron took part in the guilt of Nadab and Abihu. This is why Moses says to Aaron, don't mourn lest the Lord strike out against you and the whole congregation. There's a dark cloud hanging over all of the priesthood of Israel. And Israel could well have looked at Aaron and his other sons and said, because of the sins of Nadab and Abihu, you have lost the right to serve as priests in the house of God. You have lost the privileges which God granted to you. But God says, no. In the wake of Nadab and Abihu's failure, all of the things that I have promised to you are still true. I hope that encourages you. When we who belong to Christ fail, God's promises do not. God does not look upon us and say, you blew it again, and I'm done with you. God's not surprised. God looks upon us You blew it again. And the blood of my Son still covers you. That's grace. 
God's reminding His faithful servants that our perfection is not the condition of His grace. God doesn't expect. Now, there's a difference here. He commands it. He commands perfection. Be holy as I am holy. He's not surprised when we're not. He knows that we are but dust. He gets that. He knows we're not what we're going to be. And so he's not surprised in that sense when we sin. Our perfection is not a condition of his grace. Our sinlessness is not a condition of his grace. It wouldn't be grace otherwise. The reason it is grace is because God because we sin and God forgives. He covers our sin. He takes away our sin. That's grace. He's giving us what we don't deserve. That grace is not conditioned by us. This is God saying to Aaron and to his other surviving sons, even though your brothers have sinned grievously, all the promises which I made are still true because my faithfulness does not depend on your faithfulness. Isn't that a glorious thought? God's faithfulness doesn't depend on my faithfulness. Praise God. But it doesn't stop there. Notice secondly that Moses does not speak these words of command and instruction to Aaron. He calls the sons aside. He says, verse 12, Moses spoke to Aaron and to his surviving sons, Eleazar and Ithamar. Now surely Aaron's sons would have also been grieving the loss of their brothers. But you see God's kindness through Moses. Moses' words of instructions and his later word of rebuke are not to Aaron, but to, the, but to Aaron's surviving sons. Even that is a manifestation of the kindness and grace of God But the final thing, of course, is this. Eleazar and Ithamar, immediately after Nadab and Abihu have broken the commandments about the administration of the sacrament, they break the commandment of God regarding the administration of the sacrifice. They do it in a different way, but they do the same thing. But there is no fire proceeding from the altar to consume them, only a conversation. Moses says, guys, I thought we went over this. What have you done? And then Aaron, being a good protective dad, he speaks up in verse 19. And he explains to Moses that they didn't think they could possibly perform the duty of pure priests representing God to the people and God's forgiveness to the people in light of what had just happened to Nadab and Abihu that day. Aaron's saying, Lord, it's, it's not only that my heart wasn't in it, it didn't seem right that we should play the role of being the visible evidence of the forgiveness of sin to Israel, even though we'd offered the sacrifice for ourselves, because this cloud of sin is 
over us. It's an interesting parallel, isn't it? Nadab and Abihu did something that God had not told them to do. And in doing something that God had not told them to do, they did not show proper reverence to God in his word, and as a consequence, they die. But Eleazar and Ithamar did something different. They did not do what God had told them to do. How is this different? See, the sin of Nadab and Abihu is neither an explicit transgression of a positive command nor an omission of a positive command of God. It was a presumptuous addition to what God had said. They presumed to add to God's instruction. Eleazar and Ithamar, on the other hand, committed a sin of omission. But they did so, Aaron tells us, out of reverence for God. There's a difference in heart. And they are spared. Indeed, in the final words of the chapter, Moses gives them approval despite the fact that they had failed to obey God fully. What's going on here? What's going on here is grace. And there's something else going on here too. These priests, even in their failure, have pointed out a tremendous truth that in that ceremonial ritual, the heart matters. It's not just a matter of formality. It's not just a matter of going through the motions. The state of their hearts comes into play. They don't want to do that part of God's command, not out of presumption, not out of defiance, but precisely because they didn't feel worthy to do it. And most of the time, that's a great place to be. Because it's, a under, it's an understanding of reality. I am not worthy. I am not worthy to come before a holy God. But God in His grace says, come anyway. I've made provision for you. I want to come to the Lord and say, Lord, I am not worthy to serve you. And the Lord says, serve anyway. I don't need your service, but I want it. I know you're not going to do it right. right? I don't hear audible, the, the audible voice of God, but I hear my own voice in the back of my head constantly speaking for God. You are not worthy. You are not a good and faithful servant. You're not qualified. You're not gifted. You make mistakes. You sin. But that voice in the back of my head is overridden by the voice of God coming through His Word, which tells me that God is a gracious God. And though He doesn't need me for anything, He has called me to serve Him. 
And He desires that I serve Him. As feeble and frail and fallible as I may be. That's grace, brothers and sisters. That's grace. So God says in His kindness to these men, you should have done it. You were wrong not to. It would have been a blessing to you had you done it. It would have been a blessing to my people Israel if you had obeyed. But I forgive you. Your heart perceived the inward significance of the right and you questioned whether you would be offending me. And so I forgive you. See, they're teaching us that even in the Old Covenant ceremonial law, the heart was involved. It was the prime thing. Now this is, ver- this is vitally important for us to understand because one day a priest and a Levite are going to pass a man on the way down to Israel. And they're going to leave him on the side of the road. And we're going to stand over there like the good Gentiles that we are and we're going to wag our fingers at them. Yeah, if we'd been there, we'd have done things different. Had they helped that man, they would have been made ceremonially unclean. That's the key factor in that parable, in that story that Jesus is telling. They would have been in violation of the ceremonial law of God. They were on their way down to serve, and had they had anything to do with that man lying there by the side of the road, they would have been made ceremonially ceremonially unclean. But who's the hero of the story? The Samaritan who helped. Why? Because of this principle. There are some things that are more important than outward ceremony. Even of that which was commanded by God under the Old Covenant. That's why David could go into the house of the Lord and take the showbread from the priest at Nob. Because there are weightier matters of the law than simply ceremonial ritual. As vital as obedience to that ritual was, and we've seen that demonstrated again and again, it's nothing to be taken lightly, this reminds us that the matter of our hearts before God is the matter of supreme importance. Our God is holy, and He is a discerner of hearts. And if we know His holiness and His grace, then we will make it our business to respond in accordance with the principles of His Word. And in this case, the great moral principles of His Word are displayed even in this passage which deals with the ceremonial law. God's holiness, God's grace in the midst of human tragedy. May the Lord teach us from it this morning. Father, thank You. Your Word, Father, as always, is glorious. And I, as always, have not done justice to it. But we pray, Father, that Your Spirit would use Your Word in the hearts of Your people this day to accomplish Your purposes. And to show us, Father, by Your Spirit, that glory which I am unable to communicate. Father, may we go from this place today remembering Your holiness, but reveling in Your grace. This we ask 
In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.